Wonder Thing Studios proudly presents the Roundtable Podcast, Episode 82. Hello, literary alchemists. I'm Mike Luoma. And I'm Dave Robison. And you've tuned into the Roundtable Podcast. On the Roundtable Podcast, we invite writers to come onto the show and pitch a story idea to us and our esteemed guest host. And then we dive into it, exploring what works and what doesn't, trying to transform the raw idea into... Literary gold. Yes. Awesome. <laughs> Mike Luoma, my co-host from this recent 20 minutes with returning to this workshop episode of the Roundtable. Dude, I had a blast last week and I'm so delighted to have you back, man. Thank you. Thanks for having me back. That was a blast. <laughs> we were both, our brains, I could hear our brains, the, the creak of our headphones as our brains swelled from the mind-blowing experience. And let's continue that. Let's, 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 let's not bandy words about it. Let's bring him back on. Returning from, friends, you know it, a fabulous 20 minutes with, uh, welcoming back to the big chair here at the round table, Andrew Weston. Andrew, uh, given, given the awesomeness that was the 20 minutes with, I am so pumped to have the opportunity to workshop a story with you sir thank you for coming back and making the time thank you you've kept me in a cage all week you know that they kept me in a cage you spread the bread and water <laughs> you got good kibble we gave you good kibble <laughs> sunlight well there's no darkness i couldn't hunt shadows <laughs> that's and that's why you're twitching i get it now okay <laughs> Well, we'll we'll let you out of the cage after this episode, Andrew. I promise you. Well, and when we do let you out of that cage, Andrew, I'm curious. You you've got the the ninth just came out last January. You got stuff coming out from Perseid Press. I can only imagine there's other projects going on. So so take a couple minutes. Tell our listeners what what's going on in your world, Andrew. What's coming up in the world of Andrew Weston? Well, because I've been introduced into that um, Heroes in Hell universe. I've basically developed the the, the uh, character of Damon Grimm, who's uh, the the chief bounty uh, Satan's chief bounty hunter, and uh, I've basically developed his character, and I'm establishing, as it were, a running series. If if you remember, there's Doctor in Hell coming out um, next week, and in that series, you, you're introduced to the, to this this wonderful character. Uh, if anything goes wrong. Uh, if there's anything that upsets his infernal majesty down under, he dispatches Damon Grimm, his go-to guy who will sort anything and everything out. He's probably a very busy guy, I would imagine. Uh, yes, he's a very, very busy guy. And although he's got this cracking sense of humor, he is, uh, shall we say, not the type of person you want to cross. And, uh, yeah, he's, he's a superb character. And although I've only got a brief time with him in Doctors in Hell, I've been allowed to develop a series of novels, including him, within that Heroes in Hell universe, in a, uh, his own adventures, as it were, with his own team. That's outstanding. Oh, yeah. Uh, and basically, because obviously he doesn't work alone, and as you say, he'd be very busy. So the people who help him hunt down uh, fugitives from injustice, so we say, are what are called the Hell Hands. And... Uh, those people are Nimrod, of biblical fame, if you like, um, uh, Noah's grandson, uh, who, was a who was famed for hunting men, uh, Yamato Ta Takanaru, who was a, an ancient Japanese um, uh, ninja assassin with a fabled sword, 
And a guy called Champ Ferguson, who uh, during the, I think, Union Confederacy War was a renowned tracker. And basically, I, t- I took these guys because there's certain things about their, their, their characters that, you know, I thought, oh, yeah, they'll really add to the story because each brings something to, to, you know, to an overall plot. And I can imagine them playing off against each other when they're, they're hunting down uh, various fugitives. Are these actual figures from history, Andrew? Yes. Uh, what we try to do is base uh, some of them are fictional. Uh, but um, what we try to do is base them on real life uh, or real life characters or um, who who are they're, they're historical. Yes, they are. You know, Nimrod is mentioned in the Bible. Uh, Yamato Ta- uh, Takanoa was a real life uh, prince from Japan. Uh, ooh, about I think it was about four or five hundred years ago. I haven't got my notes available at the time. Champ Ferguson, as I say, is a real life Confederate uh, bounty hunter uh, who uh, I think was hanged. For various crimes um, at the end of the uh, at the end of the conflict, yeah, and I, I've done that with uh, certain other characters as well. Um, like he has his inquisitors, the uh, specialist interrogators, shall we say, who are extremely bloodthirsty. <laughs> There's all sorts of uh, you know superb characters there. Each bring uh, a little twist, a little uh, a little bit of additional flavour. Um, and of course, one of his chief ones, I, I've called, I've based it on the character of Red Riding Hood and called the Strawberry Fields. Um, <laughs> yeah, but, you know, for all her loveliness, she's, she's deadly, she's uh, vicious. Reminds me a little bit of the wife. Uh, but, <laughs> she's looking at me, Dad. Oh, you're done. You're done. <laughs> we, we're going to record this episode quick. You're not going to last long, pal. I think I'll stay in the cage if you don't mind. And <laughs> What's uh, what's your time frame for release of the of the novelization of Grimm's further adventures? Um, what will happen is like every summer, uh, the heroes in hell comes out the the, the anthologies, and so it'll be about the fall. Every you call it fall over there, autumn, yeah. Um, yep. So it's uh, toward the end of the year the novel will come out, and they'll leapfrog. They'll actually carry on. Uh, so what you read, for example, in Doctors in Hell relating to Grimm, you'll find that when you start the first novel, which is called um, Hell Band, uh, you find, oh, he's, he's actually um, virtually, you know, um, a few days later. Uh, in the same situation, you find him in at the end of that short story, and then it evolves into the, to the, actual, um, into the actual novel itself. And at the end of that, that will leap on then into the next anthology and so forth and so on and, uh, you know, as, as the years progress, hopefully you're going to a character that people come to love. Well, it sounds like you're going to be very busy uh, with, with Grimm and developing him. Are there other projects that you're working on, or is that pretty much consuming your attention? Uh, there are certain things that I'm not allowed to say yet, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, those are the best kind, really. <laughs> um, I, I, I wish I could tell you, um, but I... I I've been sworn to secrecy. Yeah, and you'll ha- you'll have to kill me. And and from any other author, that wouldn't carry any weight. From you, Andrew, I believe you. <laughs> so, I, but I do have um, a, again a, a a thing I'm developing at the moment. Um, it's a thing called fractured, if you like. And uh, in in this concept that I'm developing, um, it's about a scientist who's um, you know because at the moment, if if you were look to look into the world of physics and the science and so on, they're just developing um, uh, teleportation. They've been able, scientists have been able to transport a quantum package between two sites. And although uh, these packages are very small, you know, it's the first step, as you were, towards the Star Trek transporter that everyone knows and loves, without the lights. (laughs) 
and basically it's going to be based, you know, because I uh, say if you base what you're writing about in science fact, people can relate to it better. And so what's going to happen is obviously there's the inevitable accident and this guy's <laughs> going to become um, fragmented from space time, if you like. And every day he wakes up, it's going to be a different situation um, uh, where, you know, sometimes you wake up and it could be, um, you know, modern day. It could be in a world where the Nazis won the uh, Second World War. It could be where he's a woman. It could be where the dinosaurs were never wiped out by a huge meteor. Things yeah. like this. So it's going to be quite an interesting adventure. It sounds fascinating. It sounds like a, a cross between uh, Quantum Leap and what was that one? Slipstream with uh, John Reese davies I'm trying to remember. I think that was what it was called. Sliders. 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 That was it. <laughs> so, oh, yes. Yeah, sliders. I forgot that. Yes. Very cool. It was motivated by... Um, uh, quantum leap i must admit i really enjoyed that type of thing but um you know obviously along a different line sure god <laughs> well you have no free time andrew and i will be looking forward to all of that awesomeness let me let me turn the mic over to to mike <laughs> i don't think i've ever done that before <laughs> but but mike you've got a lot of stuff working in the works constantly going on and new stuff coming out take take a couple minutes tell our listeners what do you got going on dude well, every week I'm doing Glow in the Dark Radio, my podcast. Yes. A way to keep up with what I'm up to. And right now I'm still broadcasting or podcasting. Sorry, slipped into my radio mode. <laughs> uh, I'm right now I'm podcasting the chapters of my latest novel, Alibi Jones and the Hornet's Nest, which I, I launched at Balticon. Oh, very cool. Now, for our listeners that aren't in on the Alibi Jones story premise, lay that out for us, because this is enticing. Well, Alibi is a mediator for the Solar Alliance, so his his primary job is to negotiate treaties between human colonies and sometimes between human and alien races, because we've just started expanding out into the galaxy and discovered it's a settled place. There's been a lot of stuff going on for many millennia. And so we're just kind of trying to adapt into that. Alibi Jones, in about the year 2137, is the son of the Vatican assassin, the character from my previous series. <laughs> A little crossover there, nice. Yeah, and, and Alibi's trying to, um, you know, make his way in the world, but he's also kind of a, a, a famous figure because his foster mother is, is the former head of the Solar Alliance. So he can't really keep that low a profile, but he he tries to make his way through the universe, and in the first book, a friend of his is kidnapped, and he tries to track her down. In the second book, The Sunrise of Her, uh, his girlfriend or ex-girlfriend at the time gets kidnapped, and he tries to free her, but also tries to find this Sunrise of Her, which is a, an alien artifact, basically. And now in the new book, circumstances from the previous book's ended up with Alibi kind of blowing up a planet. It was a little thing. <laughs> kind of. Just kind of blowing up a planet. Just kind of. And <laughs> so the mediation core thing is starting to not work out because when word gets out that he was partially responsible for this, people are like, you can't, you just can't be a mediator. You can't be a trusted agent in these situations. So Not with that as a negotiation tactic. No, no, I don't think so. It's, it's a whole different world for him, and the Hornet's Nest is a remote base that he gets assigned to as part of a new covert ops uh, situation for, for Alibi and his, and his new team. So it's kind of a, a new experience, and I try to write each of these Alibi Jones books so that you can hop right in and read it whether you've read the previous ones or not. Okay. So Excellent. So you, 
you could pick up Alibi Jones and the Hornet's Nest and hopefully enjoy it. And if and, you want, you can go back and read the others too. So. Absolutely. And that's that they can get weekly episodes of that at glowinthedarkradio.com, correct? That is the homepage, glowinthedarkradio.com. Sweet. And as I was mentioning, he's the son of the Vatican assassin. And it was funny, as Andrew was talking about a, an assassin for Satan, I was thinking, well, I've got an assassin for the Pope. That's kind of like the opposite <laughs> side of it. Very cool. Is is there more stuff coming out for Vatican Assassin? I, I don't know. Vatican Assassin was pretty much a self-contained trilogy, but you can pick up the first book for free everywhere. I, I made the ebook free so that if you're on Amazon or Barnes & Noble or whatever, you can get a sample of what I'm doing because I've been a self-publishing author from 2000. Five now? Wow. That, that makes you a pioneer, dude. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I've made that free for a long time so people can get a taste of what I do because nobody knows who I am or didn't. And, yet. Um, yet. That's, <laughs> that's going to change, bud. It, that, it has been changing, and I like that. That's <laughs> awesome. Well, Andrew, Mike, I will make sure all of this awesomeness gets into the liner notes so that our listeners can make with the clicky click and see all the cool stuff that's coming up for y'all. But what I'd like to do right now is I'd like to take a, a brief pause uh, uh, and give some some podcast airtime to a, to another podcast or a fabulous book or some event that's happening out there in the world. And when we come back, Andrew, Michael, I would like to sit down and workshop a story with you. What do you say? Sounds good. All right, sure. Yeah, it'll get you out of the cage, Andrew. <laughs> uh, friends, don't you go anywhere. We'll be right back. On a quest for domination, evil sorcerers from another land tore apart the barriers between our worlds, and the release of magical energy burned the earth. Ten years later, a young woman named Skylar took control of the magic and used it to stop them and seal the rift. Earth was saved. Or so it seemed. Now, a new threat rises. Though the rift was closed, sorcerers from that distant land still live in our world, and the greatest of them, Embryal, has vowed to open a new rift. Helping him is Cassandra, a dark reflection of Skylar, who is devoted to him heart and soul. Will Skylar's magic be enough to stop them? And when she finally comes face to face with Cassandra, will she use her power against someone she so easily could have become? Written by Justin R. McCumber and published by Crescent Moon Press, A Broken Magic is the second book in the Born of Fire series. Skylar's adventure began in 2012 with a minor magic, and now it continues as Skylar once again pits herself against powers older and stronger than she is. Amy Dale, author of Off With Her Heart, says, Justin McCumber's Born of Fire series follows a very unique storyline, and I love that it doesn't feel just like every other book I've read. He has an amazing way of developing a universe that you can see. I am excited for what more is to come from Mr. McCumber. And Philippa Ballantyne, author of Wraith and Hunter and Fox, declares, Justin McCumber knows how to master both action and character. His writing takes you to places you'll want to go. A Broken Magic is available in print and ebook from Amazon and Barnes and Noble. To learn more about the author, please visit him at justinmacumber.com and facebook.com forward slash Justin R. McCumber.
Welcome back, dear friends, and now on to the goodness, the rich, rich, tasty dessert, main course, and appetizer, all rolled into one, the workshop segment. This is why you're here. This is why we're here. And this doesn't happen without a bold and courageous, a creative and courageous guest writer stepping up and offering their story for scrutiny. Uh, uh, and dear friends, our guest writer for this episode is a fierce advocate for literacy in the world. She is the director of VIP, Voices in Poetry, a workshopping group that brings authors and poets into local schools. Uh, she's also head of PR for the Quincy Writers Guild and has been working to sponsor poetry slams and workshops in the area. She has two works out in the world right now, a zombie apocalypse tale titled When the Gods Walked Out and a collection of short stories and poems titled Death and Other Ends. She's here to put another notch in her literary belt and get another novel out there in the world and we'd hate to disappoint her so dear friends please welcome to the writer's chair here at the round table clara robertson clara ma'am i don't care how many times anybody has pitched a story idea it is always a stressful situation and and i cannot thank you enough or, or applaud your courage enough uh for stepping up and offering your story for this episode thank you ma'am well you're very welcome i am incredibly excited to workshop this story with you guys i listened to last week's episode and quite frankly i'm a little intimidated to see what you guys have to say about it uh, this <laughs> this is a stellar luminary cast this is this is going to introduce all manner of wildness to your story uh, <laughs> well let, let's let's hear this bad boy I'm, I'm keen to get into it i know our listeners are and so is our co-hosts and guest hosts you know the story clara we we give you five to eight minutes introduce us to the story the genre the audience give us a a tagline and a theme give us uh, the world introduce us to the characters give us some tent poles of the story that you want to tell and and we'll brainstorm the heck out of this bad boy i'm gonna get out of the way ma'am the mic is all yours okay so the working title for this is the conclave and it is a twisted fairy tale horror epic adventure this is not for kids just because it's fairy tales does not mean you should read it to your children <laughs> um with the hook for it at jorinda the evil queen awakens after her defeat by prince charming and she finds that her world is crumbling and in chaos and she has to unite with her comrades to protect this world that they would normally only care about defeating uh, the theme of the story is about being more than your label. You don't have to be defined by what people have told you you are. Um, and it takes place in the world of fairy tales. Every magic of exists here. Everything that you can possibly imagine, it happens. Um, this world is separated into three main realms. Uh, for now, we call them Wonderland, the Great Forest, and the Enchanted Kingdom. And these realms are linked to their rulers' emotional, mental, and physical well-being and state, so they reflect that. Um, the characters that we're going to get here, our protagonist is Jorinda. Uh, she's the evil queen from Snow White, and as we come into her story, she is in this complete downward spiral, consumed by rage after losing her life and control and fearing that she will sink into mediocrity. She does what she does best. She manipulates the people around her to try to regain her power, and by the end, she is learning the value of collaboration, and she begins to understand that recognizing greatness in other people does not diminish her own value. Her ally in their quest is Deacon, the Pied Piper. He is an exceptionally lonely person. He keeps himself hidden away because he is convinced he is truly as bad as everyone has says he is. Um, when he responds to the summons of the Conclave and he begins to engage with Jorinda, though, he discovers that he is more than the horrors of his past. 
They are up against Jerry, the cobbler from the Cobbler and the Elves fairy tale. He is a deeply bitter man, twisted by envy and resentment of those who have power over him. He is skilled at showing the world the face they want to see, and after spending his life bowing and scraping to powerful men and women, he is determined to become even more powerful than them. In the end, though, his quest for power reveals him to be even more ordinary than he feared. And he is joined by Rue, the immortal embodiment of fear, commonly known as Rumpelstiltskin. Rumpelstiltskin, or Rue, instinctively knows where he needs to be and what tools he needs to have to cause the most upheaval and terror for those he comes into contact with. He wants more than anything in the world to find a fearless man to challenge him, thinking this will somehow reveal the purpose of his existence, but he ultimately discovers that finding the right friend can be even more satisfying. Rounding out the group are Legetta. She is Lugenda's older sister, the Gypsy Queen of the Fae, ruler of the Great Forest Rome, and keeper of the lore and histories of the world. Romola, the Mad Queen of Hearts, who reigns in the Wonderland region. She's the youngest of the three sisters. And finally, Sybil, our Snow White character, who struggles with her role in deposing Jorinda because Jorinda was like a mother to her. The story takes place in basically three acts. In the first act, we come in, Jorinda is awakened in a burial cave where she has been left for dead after torture and defeat by Prince Charming. She is determined to get back to her home, and she reclaims her place. Um, so she binds her wounds and begins the journey. On the road, she encounters Jerry, who offers to take her home. Consequently, he is there when Romola arrives, completely disheveled and raving about the collapse of her castle, towns in her realm sinking through the ground, her subjects turning on one another, all because of a child named Alice and Jerry seeking an opportunity to gain power and knowing that these events are too recent to have been properly recorded immediately runs to Legetta to de report the defeat of her two younger sisters. Legetta reacts by calling a conclave session which is a gathering of all the evil villains in a secret location known only to the members. Now, throughout the beginnings of the book, you will get a taste of the way the realms connect with their leaders as Romola falls apart, Wonderland does as well. You also discover through a series of smaller interactions that Jerry is completely obsessed with Jorinda. And when she discovers that he has been trying to run her household while she's recovering from her injuries, she turns him out. He is enraged at this dismissal and calls on Rue to help him blow off some steam. And that ends with a young lady and her friend, who happen to look like Jorinda, um, being raped and cannibalized. Uh, their fate becomes very relevant closer to the end of the book. The two women that they killed are the guardians of the heart of the world. So that leads us into Act 2. As the Conclave begins to discuss what actions should be taken to restore order to the world, Jorinda notices that the regions of the world that are run by villains are less stable and crumbling faster than the other realms. She begins to formulate a theory that perhaps they need the heroes as much as they need each other to save this world. So she hatches a plan and talks Jerry into killing Prince Charming so she can use her maternal bond with Sybil to gain an alliance between the heroes and the villains. Jerry begins to lose control after murdering Prince Charming. He attacks Jorinda one evening, but manages to escape. Jorinda and Sybil seize his home and belongings in response, and they discover his plots to overthrow them all and to keep Jorinda for himself. So in an effort to gain both Sybil's trust and remove Jerry at the same time, Jorinda gives up the locale of the Conclave meeting place, which is the special pocket in the world that blocks the detection of magic, effectively betraying her family and her allies. That leads us into Act 3, where we find Lugetta, Rue, and Deacon have managed to avoid arrest and are now focused on getting their revenge for Dorinda's betrayal. 
Dorinda, predicting that they have come, chooses to meet them on the road. She seeks aid from Deacon secretly, explaining her reasons for the betrayal and recruiting him to help her get rid of Jerry. As the two of them work together to remove the cobbler from play, they fall in love, and Lugetta and Sybil end up forming a shaky alliance, um, and they decide that they need more help to restore balance, so they journey to the heart of the world and discover that the Guardians have been murdered. Um, at this report, Rue confesses that the two women killed by himself and Jerry in the beginning of the book match their description. So they all have to sit down and formulate a plan to restore the balance of the realms without the Guardians. So they set up a ruling council, one for one hero and one villain per realm, to keep things from falling apart. As the book comes to a close, Rue and Deacon take over as guardians of the heart of the world. Rue volunteers for the job. It's part of a penance for his leaving the world without guardians in the first place. And he requests Deacon to join him in that um, assignment. Figuring the two of the most feared beings of the land would be enough to deter anyone from trying to harm the heart of the world ever again. And the three realms begin to rebuild under the leadership of the newly formed ruling council of both heroes and villains. And that's my story. Beautiful. Nicely done. Excellent pitch. Clara, before we dive into this, what are you hoping to get out of the next 45 minutes or so of intense story brainstorming? I am hoping to get, honestly, a surprise. I've been working on this story for years, so many years. and It shows. Uh, <laughs> I have this intense world built, and I mean, it is extensive. I have so many maps. Um, <laughs> but... But what I don't have, um, and I'm really actually excited that Andrew's here for this, is the conflict areas are, they're really rough. I mean, I, I live in girl world. All of my conflicts are, you know, mental. They're all, um, they're all in my head. And a lot of this is going to take place physically. I mean, the world is being destroyed. So how does that affect some of the smaller characters that we're going to get and, you know, that we're going to have breakouts of rioting and looting as everything comes apart. How do I write that in and make that effective? Um, without taking away from the story. That's something that I've really struggled with. Okay. All right. I, I think we can definitely uh, uh, address that and, and some other things. I'm sure there's lots of stuff to talk about. Before we dive into that, however, we do need to cover our ass. So, Master Luoma, would you be so kind as to deliver our patented roundtable podcast disclaimer, sir? Absolutely, sir. Clara, you are about to experience a veritable deluge of ideas, insights, and inspirations. It's important you realize that everything said from this point forward by myself, Dave, or Andrew might be complete bullshit. <laughs> this is your story, and you decide what to use and what to cast aside, okay? Deal. Done. Awesome. Very cool. I kind of feel like I'm off the hook at that point. Uh, so very excellent. Uh, uh, let's dive into this then. We, we traditionally start with a quick once around the table to give some first impressions and ask some questions of clarification. And as is our custom, we always lead off with our guest host. So Andrew Weston, please start us off. What are your first impressions of Clara's story pitch? And, and what questions do you have to clarify the story? It sounds very in-depth. Uh, it, it reminds me because you know it, I, I can reflect, um, uh, you know I can relate to that. Should, should I say because of uh, you know I, I developed one of my themes over many many years. Claire, how many books are you thinking of telling this story in? This is a one-shot book. This is a it's it, it. I thought it might be a series at one point, but 
uh, my other characters have collaborated and told me no. So this is going to be a one-shot book. Hmm. Okay. Because um, so my first, my initial gut reaction is because you've got a lot uh, of story to tell. My initial reaction is don't be afraid to go with your gut. Be yourself. Uh, if you were originally thinking of telling the story um, in a series, go with it. Obviously, try to make each aspect of it a story within itself, because that's what people like. But don't be put off by the fact that it might not be contained within one book, because just my initial reaction, and, and, and I do encompass a lot of detail within some of the stories I write, don't try and squeeze all this down into one story because my initial reaction is you're going to lose um, some depth you're going to lose clarity, uh, clarity. Um, you, uh, I would keep it to your original concept and allow the story to, to, to glow to flourish to, you know, to, to become what it's meant to be the series it was because there's a lot of story there it sounds like there's a lot going on and you know, it's, oh, you know, um, unless it's going to be an absolutely huge book, um, <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, like water refreshes, but too much water drowns. Keep right. your story refreshing and that, that people, oh, I want that. I want more of that. I want more of that. So perhaps, you know, extend it more, more than one book. And obviously, I know I might have been swayed by, um, you know, you had to cram this into uh, a few minutes. Yeah. Uh, but, it, you know, it sounds quite complicated and involved. Uh, so you need, so to give it the, uh, the you know, the, the, the time that it needs to, 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 to unfurl, to, to blossom, uh, as, it, as it were. So, so don't be frightened about um, extending it beyond more than one book. Okay. Yeah. Good observations. Excellent. Michael, your, your first impressions and any questions you had. It was like, wow, um, I'm trying to hang on for this ride. Like, <laughs> like Andrew was saying, Clara, man, you've got a lot of stuff going on here. And, and maybe it was because you were trying to fit it into the eight minutes. But um, I, I wanted to know the three kingdoms again and who's ruling each of those as the story started. Okay, at the beginning of the story, the three kingdoms, and these are tentative names. I have not decided on names for locations yet. Um, Wonderland is being ruled by Romola. She's the youngest of the three sisters, and her uh, she's more of a psychic, powerful um, person that her, her magic um, comes from her mind more than anything else. Um, and she, that, so she's got that crazy, crazy area over there with all of its cast of characters. And then uh, there's the Great Forest. That is Lugetta's realm. Lugetta is... Uh, She's the gypsy queen. She is the person responsible for creating the fairies and Thumbelina and, uh, you know, all of that runs in her realm and she works, you know, she's more of a, a natural, a natural magic. And then there is, uh, Jorinda herself. She is the ruler of the great kingdom, the enchanted kingdom, and she is definitely a potions master, an alchemist, a manipulator. Um, and they are, you know, the three sisters rule this world. Um, now are they evil? Are they all yes. like evil they sisters? They are all villains. So all they, the evil sisters have won. Yes. At this okay. point, the evil sisters have won. Um, but what makes the world work is the constant shift of power between the good and the evil. Um, when there's always one of them that's fighting somewhere. And the, and the forest itself is actually fairly neutral. Um, Lugetta has kind of retired and settled back and, you know, Fairies and fake creatures. I mean, let me let me interject just real quick. Um, as I understand it, Clara, the, the evil sisters haven't won. That 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 Alice just defeated Ramala, 
and Prince Charming just defeated Jorinda. So they, they have lost, actually. At the beginning of the story, we have they've lost too much. Um, we have uh, Alice has escaped Wonderland, and Prince Charming has defeated Jorinda in a massive way, and the balance is completely overthrown, because while the forest stays fairly neutral, one of the other kingdoms is usually always in the throes of, of battle between good and evil, so the balance maintains itself that way. Um, and right now, the, every, the world is out of balance. Okay. I'm just trying to get a, a sense of the, the larger framework that we're living in here. So I think what Andrew was saying is true. There's a lot to tell here, and, and unless it's going to be a huge book, you might want to allow for some expansion. I can absolutely see that. Any other, any other thoughts or questions, Michael, before we dive into this? Is, is it essential that everybody show a, a different side of their nature? That, is, is that a, a hardcore theme? Um. Really, what's what's essential is what I really want to touch on with with people's nature is that you get you get stuck in these roles. I mean, I grew up as a pastor's daughter, but I write horror, and that has been like the hardest thing to overcome for people in my life. They just don't understand that I do that, Um, and it's you know showing the different facets of people and and finding out that you are more than you know you've been labeled that's that's really it's a big theme in this story um you know discovering the balance of yourself so i would say it it is kind of a hardcore theme it is something i'm not willing to to step back on they they really do have to discover those pieces at least the main characters do okay cool awesome uh for me clara uh first of all i love I love stories that delve into either history or mythology and, and try and explain and explore what's, what's really going on there. So this, this is rich story food in my wheelhouse. Uh, uh, I love it. Uh, and, and I think, I think there's, there's definitely, you're, you're teasing through some, some intriguing themes here. I, I had some questions uh, as, as you were describing the, the world and, and talking to Andrew and Mike, um, I got a sense. What is the balance? Are you are you suggesting that the balance is only struck during the struggle between good and evil? Is there no is if good won, would would everything fall apart? Are you saying that the universe must be constantly in strife in order to be in balance? Not necessarily in strife, but they have to be equal. You have to accept all forms of it. You know, in art, they talk about the shadows are just as important as the light. And that is true in people and society and world. You can't have one without the other. So um, tentatively for the history of this world, yes, it's always been in struggle. They've never had a place where um, the good has completely overwhelmed the bad like they have now. And we're seeing that this is happening, but it's not, it hasn't given them the utopia that they think they're going to get. Instead, it's apocalyptic. Um, So figuring out that they have to work together is kind of the ultimate goal. At the end, you know, the world is coming into a stabilized place, but that's only because the heroes and the villains are working together. The shadows and the light are coming together to show that they need each other to work. Okay. All right. I, I don't want to devolve this into a philosophical discussion about that. I just I, I, I've noticed, especially with with fairy tales and, and with a lot, not so much recently, but with a lot of speculative fiction, there's some very you know, there's good and there's evil and they don't work together. Uh, uh, they, they are mutually exclusive to each other. Uh, uh, so and, and what you're doing through this story is exploring some of the, the, the middle ground between that. I think that's intriguing. Um, well, I just think it's very limiting to put them on such because people aren't just black and white. So I just sure. think, I think it's very limiting to do that with your characters. Okay. 
Okay. So good, good's won the battle of good and evil, and we're doomed. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay, I just I got thought it. That was good. Okay. I was just just thinking. One of the things I did with one of my characters, which might be a good idea to consider here, if you don't mind. People say like, oh, there's like two sides of a coin, but there are three sides. You've got the heads and the tails, and then you've got the rim around the edge. So <laughs> your character, your characters need to keep true to themselves whilst they're willing to learn and come to understand, um, yes, perhaps there's a need for change. So keep them true to their core values because that will add that l- little bit of internal you know, contention, that instability to the stability that they're going to bring. Uh, but keep them, as it were, um, yeah, keep them true to that facet. But when they walk that narrow edge between the two sides, which they're obviously going to have to do to bring balance to the kingdoms, because uh, you, you, you know you're after that balance. Keep that edge to it, you know, because if they're inherently evil, don't let them lose it. Don't let them become goody goodies. Uh, same right. with the, you know, they need heroes and need baddies. But yeah, they're willing to work. But you know, still make them the type of character that will stab you in the back as soon as they look. But they realise <laughs> this is gonna, you know, th- this is gonna serve them. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. I can see that. the The other question I had was the the, the primary antagonist, Jerry. Mm. Um, I I I'm not getting Clara why he's such a threat. Uh, I mean, we're talking about the queens of fairy realm here with magic at their beck and call, and this granted broken and twisted cobbler uh, uh is is making trouble why don't they just turn him into a toad and move on how because is they don't see him well but okay but eventually they do right by like at the top of at the end of act two they they do see him but at the end of act two when he has completely like lost his patience and you know he's he's killed prince charming and he's dealing with that um and he shows his true nature to them at this point you know he has been working with with Rumpelstiltskin and he has um he's got been working with the fairies in his workshop for years building up his own brand of bastardized magic um that he's not supposed to have which is part of why he's going insane after this murder okay um, so when they, by the time that they discover that he actually is a threat, there is power there that they have to contend with. Okay, I that I didn't realize that he had something other than a hammer and some nails to to <laughs> <laughs> to, to make trouble with. Okay, um, then I would I would recommend that that needs to be very tightly woven early into the story. The the other concern that I have, and we can we can discuss this as we get into the workshop proper, is the fact that the revelation, at least of of the of the antagonist at the end of act two it's not it's not oh my god don't do that but there's a challenge that you've set for yourself because he needs to be he needs to be an antagonist and and thwart the the protagonist in her objectives uh uh the clarification of that uh, is going to be probably something that that needs special attention from you moving forward the last thing that i want to talk about before we dive into this is is the guardians and the heart of the world. Uh, uh, this this felt kind of like a tack on, almost like a MacGuffin, uh, almost a Deus Ex Machina at the end. It's like we go through this whole story, and then suddenly, oh hey, there's this heart of the world and this kid, and and for some reason, the revelation of the heart of the world suddenly spawns this new council of rulership, and that was kind of vague to me. Can you can you very briefly explain how that works? Well, 
the heart of the world is basically this world has sprung from the mind of a child. Um, okay. And it's, you know, their their own power and, and all of that. And that's a completely set different set of, of you know, lore that I don't intend to attack yeah, in, yeah. This, in this particular story. But um, one of the things that the child did inadvertently was protect itself with these guardians. Now, this is a child, so mom is protective. So these guardians are women. Um, and they roam the world, and you know, but they're not particularly well known. The only person who really knows that they exist is Lugetta. She is the keeper of the lore, so she's the only one that really even knows that they're there. Um, but she doesn't realize how much they stabilize her realm in particular um, until they're gone. And they, she goes to check on the heart of the world itself. And she goes okay. to check on it because the world is crumbling, and you know what happens if the heart of the world crumbles? That they they're not going to make it. No one's going to come through that. Okay. Um, so they go, they're going to check on that, and she discovers that the guardians are gone, and that is just another element that has to be dealt with. Okay. All right. That that clarifies things for me. All right. Uh, let's let's dive into this then. Uh, uh, there's there's clearly some stuff to explore. Andrew, where would you like to dig in here? What what do you see? Any rough edges that need polishing? Anything we can zero in on for Clara? Well, I'm not really qualified to do that but it's just express an opinion because it is it sounds like a wonderfully complex uh story with some great characters especially uh like um with jerry the cobbler who's obviously going to become you know uh, a friend frenzied in source of instability um these guardians when it, is it the first time you mention them at the end of the second movement or the Guardians actually are not going to be mentioned in, until Act 3, once Lugetta starts to work with Sybil, um, and she explains why they need to go church journey right. to the heart of the forest while all this other stuff is going on. Okay. Have you ever considered, it was just a thought that came into my head, have you ever thought of a prologue where it starts with the Guardians and why they're so important? Um, I actually hadn't considered that. Um most of, the, <laughs> most of the advice I have gotten has said that people don't read the prologue anyway, so don't write it. Uh, it's just, for example, <laughs> in my, my, my latest novel, for example, it is a very big book. Um, mm -hmm. and it concentrates, so we say, on people from here, you know, from different time periods. But as a prologue, I use um, a skip ahead or behind, because you don't know exactly when it takes place, to where the story is later going to be um, based. Mm. Uh, in that prologue, because you're giving people a little taster, it's like a little hors d'oeuvre, as it were, to what's going to come later, when they then come onto it, in your case you said Act 3, it's not a BAM! Super, who the hell are these? It's kind of, <laughs> oh, yeah, oh, because, and they'll be, ah, you know, here we go, yes, we've had a little taste of these before, so it'd be something a little familiar that they can then build on. It was just a thought, but of yeah. course... Well, no, it's up to what your because every, every person, yeah. every writer is has their own individual way of developing things. But if well, you, which is just to give that little taste of them at the beginning and why they're so important, what they're doing, and then they're blending out of the scene. No one knows they're there. They're working behind the scenes. It's just enough to give the reader think, oh, okay, and then they'll forget about them until bam, ah, they're back. 
Well, two things come to mind as you as you describe that, Andrew. Terry Pratchett, at the beginning of every single Discworld novel, starts off with just a few paragraphs of on the back of Great Atune, there are the five elements on top of which is the Discworld and blah, blah, blah. And you wouldn't necessarily, Clara, have to give us the whole mythology of the thing, but, you know, the fairy worlds were born of the dream of a child. She was the heart of the world, protected by the guardians. And, and you know, throw in a paragraph or two of that, and away you go. The, oh, that's, uh, very, uh, that's very similar to Wheel of Time, actually. Yeah, it, it's, if it works, use it, baby. Uh, but the, but other, the, the other thing is you can also set up that scene later where they're getting killed and eaten because you can leave the, the prologue ending with with those characters in that situation or or about to enter into it so there's resonance when you come across it well and the other thing that that occurs to me i don't know if you ever read the uh uh the the thor comic book uh ragnarok the ragnarok series um that comic book you you are awesome for for knowing (laughs) what i'm talking about but but you saw in in way before the Ragnarok series ever truly started, there were these little vignettes of the sword being forged, and it raised this question. And you could, you know, have an interlude between chapters of the Guardians moving through the land. And we don't know that the Guardians, they just, they do stuff that's Guardian-like and, and plant a seed and, and weave that through the story. So the other thought that I had, Clara, was... Um, two things. Uh, I, I agree with Andrew's assessment. It is kind of like, bam, whoa, where did these people come from at the end? Uh, uh, we definitely need to set that up. And we've given you some ideas for that. My thought would be uh, have the Guardians have the Guardians be around already. At the beginning of the story, instead of having Jerry find him, have the Guardians find Jorinda and guide her back to her house and have Jorinda find Jerry there you know, making himself at home, sniffing her undies, all the stuff that Jerry shouldn't be doing, uh, do that. and and toss him out, and and then we establish the custodial nature of the guardians. They can leave, and then you know, Ramala comes in and says, "Oh my God, Alice fucked up my world," and and we're off to the races. The other thought is, don't have Jerry and Rue kill them in the first act. Uh, have that be the inciting incident. At the uh, at the climax of the book, when people decide that Jerry, this is how they discover Jerry is a bad guy, because he can he's got enough power to kill the guardians, and you can take the whole beginning of the book and show how badass these guardians are. You know, killing the guardians, big deal. Eh, Kill the guardians. I got a knife. I can do that now. But if they're badass and Jerry kills them, now you've established Jerry as a true threat. His power is established, and it's a huge revelation. Holy fuck, and now the world is dead. That would also, in keeping with Andy's, Andy, sorry, (laughs) Andy, Andrew's uh, uh, assessment of this is a big story, that would actually make, you know, uh, a great end to one of the books of they killed the Guardians, the world is doomed, holy crap, and now the whole world has changed, and then the second book is we've got to get on Jerry. So that was my thought. Mike, Mike, what are you, are, is any of that singing for you, bud? Yeah, I just, I felt like Jerry wasn't fully formed as, as, as I was hearing him outlined. I needed to know more about him. So I think that would kind of reflect that. I, I feel like he was the character that I didn't understand what, a, what, why he was a threat. And I didn't feel like his motivations were clear to me. Yeah. Or, or even, you know, if, if he could attack 
the guardians and they kick his ass and then he goes to his temple of power and does some freaky freaky stuff and and gains the power to do it some, something that that i agree with you mike the, the, jerry as as a as an antagonist needs to be woven more deftly more more tightly into the story from the beginning you know maybe he's in jorinda's castle you know not just keeping house but maybe he's taking her power you know, maybe, you know, I don't know how the magic works in your world, Clara, but maybe he's not just sweeping and doing dishes. Maybe he's corrupting. What if he's making shoes that sap people's power? And there you go. Him? Well, that's what he does for her as he makes all of her shoes. Uh, so that's, okay. why, that's okay. why he has access to her palace at all um, as he makes her shoes. So it's, I mean, that's. That's actually a really good idea, um, pulling him in like that. I've always liked the idea of him just being someone that they completely overlooked and he doesn't really, you know, have anything particularly special going for him outside of his own power. But it does it would make more sense to weave him in there. Yeah. Well and, and it's 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 all well and good for the for the characters in the story to to overlook him, and they probably should initially. He's just a cobbler for crying out loud. But the reader needs to be brought in on that secret, secret thing so that when people start encountering Jerry later after they realize, holy crap, this guy is evil. No, don't talk to him. You know, you get that. You heighten the tension uh, of, of things as we go forward. Maybe he develops a magic that makes the shoes more comfortable, but at the same time, sucks the energy from yes and, and and consumes their mind a little bit it makes them subservient to him Ooh, maybe Ooh. Ooh, maybe uh, <laughs> uh uh maybe jorinda you know puts on a pair of shoes after she tosses him out you know he knew that he planned that of course she's gonna toss him out of course she's gonna come back uh that's fine because i've got her shoes all laid out and she puts on his shoes and you know have her go through you know a part of the first act uh uh sort of of battling this this will this impulse and maybe Ramala who is the 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 mind witch realizes oh sister you've been corrupted oh let me let me cancel that magic for you or you have to you have to go she herself is insane they don't listen to her right up front that's actually a really good yeah stuff like that stuff like that Andrew what about uh what about you what are you how are you feeling about Jerry as an antagonist do you have any insights or anything to add to to the discussion about him I've got a little bit of fellow feeling there, um, uh, as in, because I, I have a character in, shall we say, uh, a book who, to begin with, is, um, well, he's just a pain in the ass. Uh, <laughs> basically, he is. He's a real pain in the ass. And um, uh, people hate him. Uh, he's, you know, impotent to do anything about it. It is, uh, and, you know, they slap him about. And his bitterness, his hatred, builds and builds and builds. But there's nothing he can do about it until later on. And I, I know, and this is what I was feeling there with this character that you could do with Jerry. In, in this first thing, he's there quietly, you know, evolving in the background, percolating, brewing away, evolving, as it were. And uh, until, bam, you find out, wow, he's become a power. So... I can only say from a fellow aspect of a character I've recently developed, um, yeah, in the entire, so we say, first book, uh, people absolutely hated him, and he hated everybody else, um, but he, he wasn't in a position to do anything about it until near the end, and it's not until later on, I say, I, I, sorry, I can't expand on this yet, yeah, but yeah. he 
as it were, comes into his own and becomes a force to be reckoned with. And you find out why he becomes a force to be reckoned with. And once he does, all that bitterness, all that hatred, all that being ignored and, you know, cast into the shadows of it comes to the fore and it adds this, 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 you know, vitriolic acid to his, his, um, his character that really, really makes him a nasty piece of work and a main contender. And you've got that potential here with Jerry. Yeah. Uh, for goodness sake, don't waste him because, you know, that quiet, unassuming guy who, you know, he fears normalcy, if I remember you saying at the beginning. He fears just being normal and overlooked. Now, goodness me, what a lot you can do with him. Make him someone that when the reader, as soon as they see his name mentioned, oh, bastard, you know, <laughs> I want to strangle him. And, you know, <laughs> hatred of him during the first book, nothing, 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 and then bam. You know, um, there you, you know, go. Uh, and then if you do decide to, to, as it were, expand it and carry it on, then, you know, show how he develops, how he becomes a force to be reckoned with and why he's capable of taking out these guardians and more. Well, and I think that really speaks to what you were saying initially, Andrew, about the fact that there's a lot in this story to cram into a single book. Well, that's uh, the thing. Don't cram it. Don't, for goodness sake, don't cram it. It, it. it sounds as if there's a lot of potential here. And one thing I've learned is let the story develop its own pace, its own evolution, as it were. Don't cram it, for goodness sake, because you can stra- you know, you could strangle the life out of it. Don't. It sounds like, you know, this has got, a, you know, this is a great story to be told. So let it rain free. Let it grow. Let it evolve. Yeah, very much so. Very much so. Mike, is there anything bubbling in your brain right now that you want to dive into? Um, I also question the motivations of the, the Pied Piper of Deacon, mm. trying to figure out um, how he relates, because it just seemed like he was kind of an added-on character. Deacon was originally, he wasn't important um, at all. He was one of the people that showed up to the Conclave. I mean, he originally had a different name, and he just wasn't important. Um, but I was right. I was working on this story one day, and I, and I wrote this scene, and I realized it was about him. I was like, who is this character that I can't stop writing about? Who is this person that wants to be part of the story? So I figured out that it was him, and he's, he, he turned into it. And if we go back into the history of the world, the two people that, um, that are the most infamous are the Pied Piper and, and Rumpelstiltskin. So Deacon and Rue are the most feared stories in, in the realm. And Deacon has spent his entire life in his in his castle in the dark, you know, every child that he has ever stolen is still in that castle with him, not just mentally, but physically. Like, he has their skeletons in there with him, and he's literally driven himself mad and turned himself into this dark monster that, you know, he doesn't get called on much anymore because when you call on Deacon, he gets it done, and maybe a little bit too much getting it done, more than you <laughs> wanted him to do. Um, so he has no friends. And so he comes to this conclave, and, and suddenly he, he's necessary. They need everyone. He can't, he can't not participate because if he doesn't participate, he's done. He realizes that he has no shot at ever redeeming himself, at being the person he wants to be. And as the story progresses, and Jorinda needs him specifically because she'll never turn to Legetta, her older sister. There's too much, there's too much jealousy there from, from growing up. And Rue is not someone that she would think of to, to give help. I mean, for Christ's sakes, he's the, 
in mortal embodiment of fear. He- yeah, we'll talk more about Rue later. He's he's being underserved, I think, in in the story as it stands. But carry on. Um, so she goes to Deacon and she seeks him out, and he suddenly sees himself as as capable of doing more than causing harm um, to to the children and to himself and to the world. And he gets a new insight into himself through his relationship with her that turns him into somebody that is uh, he's. He's one of my favorite characters to write, to be honest. Um, <laughs> does that knock anything loose for you, Mike? Okay, I, I guess what I want to know then is when does the conclave occur? I know that she calls it in the first act, but when, when in the lines of the story do these people come together and they're together in this conclave? The conclave comes in the, at, the, at the end of the first act because the first act is everybody coming together. It's, it's you know, it's the, the world is ending and Ramla showed up and, and we have to get Jorinda home and she... And Jerry tells Lucetta what's going on. And so she calls everyone together. The end of the first act is everyone coming together in the conclave meeting. Okay. Yeah, see, and that, there's something about that. It, it, it sounds like a, a, a gathering of the Rotary Club. Uh, uh, we're going to have a conclave, and all the evil guys are going to get together. We're going to have spaghetti. We'll talk a little bit, and we'll go back to shuffleboard. The conclave needs, I mean, this, this can't happen. First of all, the conclave should never happen. Holy crap, it is something that you do not do because, you know, gathering all of that energy. Ooh, 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 oh, crap, oh, crap, oh, crap. Okay, all right, all right. We need to give some weight, I think, to the conclave to make it more than just just a gathering of of people. It's 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 a choice that has consequences. And I think that's yeah. that's something that we need to really play up, because with the stakes as high as they are, we need to have every choice, have a very clear stake and a very clear consequence of making it. Uh, and that'll that'll enhance the 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 tension and and the whole oh, crap. What's going to happen? That that hook that drives the reader forward. Um, I God, I don't know if I want to dive into this yet. Um, okay, what the hell? I'm going to dive into it. Um, let, let's let's when you were talking, Claire, about Deacon and Rue being the most notorious characters. Mm-hmm. The Pied Piper. I mean, obviously, he has control powers he can play pipes and rats and children and probably people it's probably one of why he's one of the most feared and dreaded characters is because if he starts playing the pipes you don't know what he's gonna make you do that's scary as hell what if before the story started deacon played the pipes and trapped rue what if, what if Rue, this, this embodiment of, of fear and terror, what if, what if, ooh, ooh, what if, what if, what if, what if Luce, uh, Jorinda commissioned Deacon? She wanted Rue's power. So she commissioned Deacon to bind Rue. And Rue is in her basement in this box. And she, and that was the source of her power. And what if Jerry, while he's sniffing her undies and doing the dishes, finds the box? And takes it when she throws him out. And in his fit of rage and fury uh, at being cast aside, and have some more bad things happen to him, have him play some more mischief and more more nastiness. And it's like, oh, and he's driven to the edge. And at the top of Act One or the bottom of Act One or top of Act Two, he unlocks the box and opens up, and there's Rue. 
And now, oh, Jerry, you've got power. Now you have an ally because Rue wants vengeance. Oh, my God, that deacon bastard. He, he, he tricked me. Oh, all of them, you know, bam. And now, and now we, can, we can get a feel for why Rue is important, how powerful he is, and the fact that the antagonist has that power. Again, the stakes are raised. That's there. I'm done. <laughs> it, it's an interesting play on it, um, but it, it doesn't work in the world for Rue to ever be trapped by anyone. Um, he is Rue is is he's immortal. And well, he, Gaiman trapped Dream for twenty years. Well, uh, I'm not Neil Gaiman. <laughs> okay, all I wish right. I was, but I'm not. Well, that's fine. Uh, what, 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 go ahead. What if Rue allows idea, himself? What if Rue allowed himself to be trapped? Ooh, yeah. That's pop- that is a possibility. The idea that Deacon and Rue are playing a game at the beginning and something goes wrong and maybe he gets forgotten and he can't get out. I, I mean, we could do, I could do something with that. But I don't think that making him the source of Jorinda's power get, allows her to be true to, to herself as a character. Um, well, okay, she doesn't have to be a source of power, but I mean, having a character like Rue under your thumb. Yeah, she takes him off the board. Yeah. And now she can be that that thing. She can be the thing that's feared. I mean, it, it doesn't have to be the source of her power, and it, it doesn't even have to be in your book. It was just a thought. <laughs> just a thought. It, because, is an, it is an angle that I will consider because the relationship between Rue and Deacon is 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 a really fun one. Well, yeah, and, and, and also the relationship, I mean, the, 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 the love affair between Jorinda and Deacon just comes out of nowhere. It's like, hey, we've never spent time together, but you're my soulmate. Can I call you maybe? You know, we, <laughs> we, we, need, to, we need to establish some relationship some connection before there's a lot through throughout this story clara there's a lot of bam and this happens and bam and this happens and i think what we're trying to do is weave in some supporting story so it's not as big a surprise at the end it doesn't feel like it's coming out of left field so so the fact that jorinda and deacon have history maybe it's just business uh, uh but that sort of opens the path that there is a connection there and it can evolve and grow but but laying those those story threads those seeds that lay down and then build forward from there uh, uh gives the reader uh, uh more preparation as, as andrew was attesting to earlier you know let them see what's going on and then when you pull out the big reveal it's not as huge uh whoa that where did that come from does that make sense yeah that makes sense and okay. you know the the story, the love story between Jorinda and Deacon again happened on its own. Like I said, Deacon was never supposed to be a big character; he kind of became one. Um, and when he became one of that in there, I have fought against that love story from the very beginning, and it's just not going away. Well, then we we need well, to we need to but yeah, exactly. Back weave him in. You know, maybe you know with with as much power as he has, maybe he's linked to the Guardians somehow. Uh, 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 maybe his music uh, uh, that he plays. Uh, is the music of the world and the guardians hear that music and, and use it to guide them where they go. Maybe that's how Deacon, you know, maybe Deacon gets a clue that something's up with the guardians uh, uh, because his music feels empty now, you know, little, little things like that, 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 that tie these characters together because they, they, they feel very thread separate from each other at this point. Maybe in the past Deacon tried to use his flute to charm, Jorinda? Jorinda. <laughs> and, and failed. 
Yes, because she's stronger than that. Yeah. I just throw that out there. No, I like it. I like it. And and that would create this wonderful spark. And it's like, and she and he was the first time she actually felt like succumbing to somebody. You know, it was like, I love that music. And it wasn't the fact that she she could that she wasn't able to succumb to it. It was her own pride that 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 stopped her from giving into it. And that pride was so strong that it broke the spell, but she wanted to in her heart of hearts. It's like, God, that music, that the man that makes this music, how, how, Oh, I can, I can curl up in that. No, I'm Jorinda. I'm the evil queen. Fuck you. And, and, (laughs) and, and break that spell. Uh, but, but, you know, have that spark there initially. And of course, initially it's the, Oh, you bastard. I hate you. But you don't, do you? No, you really, really don't, because he's got the smolder and he's got the hair and all of that stuff. He really does. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> all right, we're we're running out of time here, guys. Let's let's take this home. Uh, uh, let's take one last turn around the table. Just uh, 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 Andrew, Michael, and myself give some final thoughts to Clara uh, uh, to to t- tuck into her pocket some literary gold that she can carry away to help her write this story and bring it to fruition. Andrew, we'll start with you, sir. Final thoughts for Clara? Yeah, uh, just on what you were developing there, um, yeah, it might be a good idea to use that budding or that smoldering relationship as a source of possible contention. You know, perhaps if he did try and use his pipes to win her over and she was able to uh, resist it, um, well, how could she trust him after that? If he's trying to like win my affections in that way, <sighs> God, it's almost a rom-com, isn't it? <laughs> Slap your knees. Um, you know, um, you know, but yeah, you could use it as a, a, a as a source of contention, and you know, and, and and weave it into the story so that will they, won't they, will they, won't they, up and down. You know, um, yeah, it's just hmm, cool. I like that. Yeah. I like that a lot. Mike, what about you? Final thoughts. Ooh, I still had so many questions. Mike, <laughs> we can we can keep asking questions. That's fine. Yeah. I was wondering about Lugetta missing her fairies with Jerry. It, 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 did, Ooh, did yeah. That he grabbed her fairies and he's using them to fuel his power. I, well, it's not it's not fairies that assist um, that assist Jerry. It's, okay. it's elves um, and uh, the, the elves and the shoemaker. But his elves did originally come from her forest with her permission. But they've been there for so long, and with his bitterness, his bitterness has corrupted them and their attitude. And that's kind of where he starts building his power out of is they start to help him because they've been together for so long that they just you know they they recognize him above Lugetta at this point. There could be some comic relief for you in those elves. I guess that's just my <laughs> final thought. The elves themselves could be... story is too serious? No, no. It can be dark comedy. It can be yeah. dark comedy. But, I mean, if you have two little, like, you know, they're, they're your minions. <laughs> there you go. There you go. The elves are Jerry's minions. <laughs> yes, fabulous. <laughs> no, I think it's a, a really neat-sounding story. And I, I, like Andrew says, I wouldn't restrain yourself, constrain yourself to one book. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I, I I I have to echo that. I think I think ending ending the story with the betrayal of the conclave and and the uh, uh, the death of the guardians. I think that's a huge high point that just sets up a lot of questions that will compel the reader to buy the next book to find the answers. 
Um, so, and, and I, uh, you, you know, you, you invoke Legetta, Mike, and, and that's true. She, she kind of got short shrift in here. Um, uh, I think all of the characters, Clara, that, that you have in here need to have more interaction and engagement with your primary protagonist. Uh, uh, you've established that Legetta is the elder sister and is always failing, uh, in, in Jorinda's eyes. And, and we need to, we, we need to see proof of that. Uh, uh, you know, and, and, you know, maybe when, when Jorinda gets home, they use, you know, Jur- uh, Legetta uses the magic mirror and, 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 you know, calls her sister and says oh i see you're still alive good uh uh, i hope you're all right blah 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 um you know whatever but have the 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 both the personal and the political relationships uh uh interwoven the weave these characters together they they feel very much like they're on their own unique arc that only crosses at the crisis points and and having them weave from the very beginning uh and of course you can't do that because you've got a freaking cecil b demille cast of characters here uh but you can you know weave them in throughout the story so that when those crisis points occur they're supported and justified and truly crises because we actually saw it coming and we didn't know and that's i think that's the biggest advice i can give you is that there's a lot more value i think to to raising a question early and having the reader wondering how is this going to work out rather than jumping out from behind a plot point and scaring them? Boo, they're in love. Uh, uh, that's, you know, I mean, that works once or twice, but like in a horror flick, it, it, it's a cheap thrill. Uh, uh, it's, it's a much more uh, effective hit to the feels when they see it coming and it's a train wreck and you can't look away. So. Awesome. Well, Clara, you know the rules of the roundtable. When you write this thing, and I do hope you will, uh, whether it ends up being a series of books or you you somehow manage a a velociraptor slaying doorstopper of a book uh, to make this happen, and you put it out in PDF, self-pub, indie pub, trad pub, we don't care. When it's out in the world and in people's hands, you come back, you let us know, and we will knight you. We will make you a knight of the round table podcast you down with that i'm down with that it might be a while this is one i'm pursuing traditional publishing with roger that roger that we have we have we've been doing this podcast for about three years now and we're just now starting to see we're sharpening the 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 knighting swords for several of our previous guest writers so this is a process that takes time we understand awesome andrew weston uh, sir, thank you so much, not only for making the time, but for contributing so fabulously to with ideas, insights, and, and perspective. You, sir, are why we bring experienced writers onto the roundtable to, to, to make our blatherings have a little substance. Thank you so much, sir. Oh, thank you. It's a shame we weren't on video because you'd have seen the Mankini I wore just for this. Oh, thing. man. <laughs> and, oh, I and, would have lo- it would have gone with my Hello Kitty headphones. <laughs> <laughs> See, but in the cage, I think it would. I think it would have lost something in its presentation. So, <laughs> ooh, there we go. <laughs> Mike Luoma, this has been a blast, sir. I'm so very grateful to have had you as a co-host, and I'd really like to do it again. You down with that? Oh, absolutely. I'd come back and do this 
hundred times. <laughs> awesome. Well, that's going to take a while, but let, I think it's a worthy goal. Let's make that happen. All right. <laughs> and friends, as long as we're doling out the gratitude, we would be remiss if we didn't include you in that brace embrace of thankfulness. Uh, you guys closed the loop for us. And, and whether you clicked in on Tuesday when the episode dropped or it's 2020 and you just found the round table and you're working through the archives, Thank you so much. We appreciate you tuning in. If you're digging it, if you're feeling the love, you know, blog about us. Post, share a post on the on the on the Facebook. When you see this thing go up, share that bad boy. Sharing is caring. Spread the word. Let more people discover the awesomeness that is the round table. <sighs> Man, I'm I'm lighting a cigarette because once again we, we have gone and done it uh but the, the, the fabulous thing is as, as spent and exhausted as we all are in seven days we are somehow rejuvenated like the phoenix from the ashes to do this all over again another guest host bringing wisdom and insight into our brains another courageous guest writer putting a story out for scrutiny and brainstorming more round table awesomeness for everyone but i know seven days for some reason we just can't, i just can't do this every day but but mike really we got to give them something what can they be doing between now and seven days from now to make that time just fly by can i be boring and repetitive i think you ought sir go for it right because yeah. writers write that's right that's exactly what writers do writers get their butts in the chairs the fingers on the keyboards and make with the clickety click <laughs> no, that redundancy is affirmation, Mike. It's never a bad thing. <laughs> and I will tell you, friends, speaking of redundancy, as I always do, uh, that you find what you're looking for. So, so, so look for that 12-year-old bottle of awesomeness sitting on the shelf. Look, look for that that, that extra change in the in the in the cushions that you didn't think was there, and bam, it's a $20 bill. Now, I'm not saying you're going to find the $20 bill, but whatever you look for, you will find so look for awesomeness and it will come to you we will see you in just seven days until then you guys stay cool be frothy and be awesome and we will talk to you soon bye-bye this episode of the roundtable podcast is copyright 2015 by wonder thing studios and is released under a Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, share-alike license. That means please don't sell it, but you can share it to your heart's content. You can even use portions of it in your own productions, as long as you release those productions under the same licensing terms and reference us as the source. Theme music for the Roundtable podcast was performed by the Hepcats of Brotown, Gary Gold, David Labroyer, Billy Nobel, and Matt O'Donnell. If you would like to be a guest writer or guest host, join in on the conversation or just learn more about us, visit our website at www.roundtablepodcast.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundtablepodcast and on Twitter at writerspodcast. And you can always email us at thetable at roundtablepodcast.com. Thanks for listening.